Well, not anymore. Pray with me, please. Father, as we approach your word, let us be convicted of our need for you. As was just reflected upon, you speak perfectly, with clarity, with sufficiency, with authority. And Father, you condescend to a level that is far beneath you to speak to man. Father, we are not owed the privilege of your word. We don't have any kind of entitlement that we bring this morning that should get in the way. At least I hope we do not. But we confess, Father, that we need you. We need your spirit among us to remind us of all that you said, to discern what is true, to convict of sin. Father, as I am on the threshold of preaching the truth of the person of the Christ and the work that he offers to reconcile your people to you, I confess that I am utterly inadequate of such a task. So, would you give me all that I need to speak with clarity? Would you allow your word to do what it needs to do in our lives, Father? Thank you for the beauty of this account from Matthew that reveals the cost of gospel reconciliation. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is a delight to be with you again this morning. A privilege to be here among you. It was fun to be here for the Q&A this morning. Uh, Fun to be asked questions. And I'm surprised in all the questions that one thing did not come up. And that is my love of infomercials. I'm a great lover of infomercials. Anyone with me? Anyone love infomercials? Magic Bullet. Anyone like the magic bullet? It's probably the Cadillac of infomercials. The slap chop. Does anyone own a slap chop? Can you believe that they throw in that cheese grater for free? Unreal. At least, uh, well, they were for the next 15 minutes. They were doing that. But... In all those infomercials and the presentation of all these things that are so necessary for your life, any infomercial is only as good as it's, has this ever happened to you moment. You remember those? They're always shot in black and white. Has this ever happened to you? And who among us has not found themselves hopelessly tangled in a garden hose? Who can't relate to that? Or found themselves unwilling to change the TV channel because your hand might get cold from uncovering it with the blanket. Thank you, Snuggie, for all your help with these crises of the modern world. I love that, has this ever happened to you moment. It's essential in the infomercial, I'm sure you know, because without it, without illuminating the problem, you'll never pay the cost no matter how many easy payments they break it down into. 
Well, the book of Matthew, though not in infomercial, is written to unveil the solution to a problem. It's a problem that has happened to you. That you find yourself born into. And has continued all throughout Scripture. As it's been revealed before the work of Matthew. Matthew is revealing in his solution how gospel reconciliation is to be accomplished. The title of this sermon, I I emailed it too late, is The Cost of Gospel Reconciliation. I told my wife that, and she told me that that sounds like a title I would come up with. Which I'm encouraged by because I think it's kind of biblical language, gospel reconciliation. I like it because it reminds me of an accounting term. A cost is owed. There is a debt that must be reconciled. We're in the red. And something must be done about it. It can't stand that way. It must be paid for one way or another. And in the book of Matthew, the mode that is revealed is through the Christ for his people. Matthew spends the whole book unveiling this God-man with the intent of showing us that he is the solution for man's chief affliction, namely separation from God because of their sin. That's gospel reconciliation. That's the good news, the gospel of victory won and man being returned to favor to enjoy God forever and live in the face of him. That's no small task. That's a huge unveiling that we come to in Scripture. And so as we read Matthew, we see him working systematically to unveil why Jesus is the hope of his people. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, if you would. And we'll be in verses 28 to 34. As we head into it, there's so many stories given in the Gospels, so many accounts, one after another, stacked on top of each other, that we may be tempted as we come to this account of Jesus healing two demon-possessed men to shrug it off and say, here's another one. Here's another story. Not as if it's not miraculous by any means. It just happens to be another story in a long line of all the things that Jesus has done. But if what John says is true at the end of his gospel, that if all the work of Jesus were be to be written down, it would fill volume upon volume that would cover all of the earth, if we consider that for a minute, then we might start to think well, there's probably a lot of intentionality as to why Matthew wrote down only the things that he wrote down. He could have written so much more, and yet he limits it to all that he's written in his gospel. Each story here is inspired, written down, preserved for the purpose of driving home in our hearts the truth 
the pulling back of that curtain that Jesus is the only one capable of reconciling God to his people. And in Matthew 8, 28-34, we see with more clarity who this Christ is and what his work is to be. And in conclusion, we will see what responsibility we have in response to his dominion. In short, my purpose in preaching this text this morning is that you would see the immense worth of the Christ in Jesus displayed in such a way that it would drive home deep into your heart your need of Him and Him alone, that it would drive away any idea that you have that you could reconcile yourself to God, And it would fixate your gaze on him as the one who is worthy of all praise forever and ever. Amen. So read with me in Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. In this account, we see very clearly the person of the Christ being revealed, his work and the response. So first, we see that gospel reconciliation is rooted in the headship of one who is worthy. Gospel reconciliation is rooted in the headship of one who is worthy. Beginning in verse 28, let's just work through this together. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes. Now this, uh, likely, somewhat disputed, is on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you remember last week, I presume, uh, you were studying this, the account of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And this is where they land immediately after that account. This territory, this country of the Gadarenes, where the city of Gadara is located, Uh, is originally the territory of Manasseh. It's part of what was to be taken in the conquest of Joshua. It's the original promised land. It's part of God's promised inherited land to the people of Israel. And now it has been surrendered to Gentiles. It's controlled by Gentiles. We know this because Matthew separates it, says it's the country of these people. We can infer it as well because there's a herd of pigs nearby and pigs are unclean animals, animals that Jews would not have. They would not have certainly herds of them on hand. And so we know that this is a country that's inhabited by those who are not the people of God. 
And Jesus enters the land. Or at least he borders it. He washes up on the shore of it and is immediately met by two demon-possessed men, as the account goes on. Two demon-possessed men met him. Now, it's remarkable how little we know about demon possession. As many times as it's mentioned in Scripture, we really don't have a great handle on exactly what that means, at least not in whole. Hollywood has done its work on that. But what we do know from Scripture is that it's an unclean thing, that it's something that is markedly apart from the people of God, separate from them. It is unclean. It is not to be among God's people. We also know that it's always harmful to the individual who finds himself demon-possessed. And it's typically accompanied with the fierceness that's indicated here. Did you catch in the story? They're so fierce that no one could pass that way. It's harmful to others, in other words. Now, if you remember from last week, the story concludes after Jesus calms the storm, the disciples ask themselves, themselves, what sort of man is this that the wind and the seas obey him? What sort of man is this? And that idea, I believe, Matthew carries over into this story when he writes that no one could pass that way. No man could pass that way. So we're immediately bombarded as readers of Matthew with the question, what sort of man is this? And now no man can pass this way. This land then becomes a proving ground for what sort of man this is. Now, if you're a reader of Matthew, a Gentile reader, which I presume is most of us, if not all, that's a pretty generic question. What sort of man is this? He could be anyone, for all we know. What sort of man is this Jesus? But if you're of the original audience, which is written to primarily first century Jews, that question takes on a a very specific flavor. Suddenly, It's a very detailed question. There's more to it than just what sort of man is this. Now, we should ask that question. But to a Jew, and we'll try to put ourselves in the presumptuous position of being a first century Jew, one who's versed in Hebrew history from birth, one who's been told of the covenant with God and his people, one who lives under the occupation of the Romans, one that lives in what has been relegated to a paper kingdom of Israel, it exists in name only, but under the control of Caesar, your history has seen this occupation and exile before. But you hold to that promise of covenant relation to God. You hold to the promise that God made to your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that through your people, the nations will be blessed. And through the unveiling of this covenant in the Old Testament, that one would come from among you who would bless the nations. And you hold to another promise. Not a promise to the people of God, but a promise made to a certain serpent in Genesis chapter 3. 
in a certain garden. A promise that one day the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. A promise that's rooted in Adam's failure to vanquish evil, to cast out the tempting serpent from the midst of the holy garden of God's dwelling with man. And God promised that serpent that he would send this one to crush his head. And you, as a Jew, have studied the word of God, revealed in the ancient writings, and you've searched for this true and worthy son throughout the scriptures. You've searched for this serpent crusher who would be the head of the people of God, who would replace the failed headship of Adam and be a worthy candidate to claim his place. You've heard the accounts of kings like David who possess might in flashes, but they ultimately fail. You've read of the patriarchs who reveal the character of this skull crusher in parts. But again, no one who fits the bill. And you wonder, as you read Matthew's account, what sort of man is this? As the ancient writings end, you're left with no clear resolution. But you come to the end of Malachi, and his words hang in the air as the last word from God before the new covenant comes. They're pregnant with anticipation of this man who is still to come. Malachi writes, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And Matthew in his gospel begins the process of veiling this candidate for the Lord that you seek. For the task of serpent crushing and bearing the weight of that headship for a people where Adam failed. Will this man Matthew is pointing to be the man to cast out that which is unclean from the land? Will he do the job? Adam could not cast out that which was unclean. What sort of man is this? Suddenly is much deeper and more profound. Is this the answer to Hebrew history? Is this the promise of the blessing of the nations from the seed of Abraham? Is this the true Son of God? And you continue in Matthew as Jesus passes away that no man is willing or able to travel in this Gentile-controlled region. Two demon-possessed men confront Jesus. Men who had terrorized all other men. Is this man going to be terrorized with them? What sort of man is he? The might of these unclean men reminds you of the rest of Malachi's writing. Continuing and speaking of the Christ, Malachi continues, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears where he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap? He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years. The Lord, the Christ, is the one who will come to refine that which is corrupted. So if he's the Christ, 
as Matthew is indicating, then he will be the sort of man who will cleanse that which is unclean, who will cast out the uncleanliness from among the people. See, the impeccability of this man will not be tainted by the unclean things around him. Rather, Malachi reminds you that none can stand before the refining he brings. So this path, suddenly, where no man can travel, will be the unveiling of whether or not this is the Christ. How will this man handle the struggle? To cast out that which is unclean where Adam failed? Will he succumb to the forces of temptation? And so we pivot. And the demons open their mouths and they speak and they confess right away who this man is. Continue with me. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? See, the disciples wondered, what sort of man is this? The demons don't question it. They know this is the Son of God who has come from them. This is the one who bears all of the authority and the weight of God. These demon-possessed men don't threaten or terrorize as they have in the past with other men who have passed that way. These terrors of the gatherings take on a submissive tone suddenly. And they seem to know exactly what sort of man this is. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? These evil spirits recognize the authority of this man immediately. They fear the torment that is to come and they know that this man is the one to bring it. They beg Jesus not to destroy them. These two demons, or I don't know how many demons, I suppose, we're dealing with, many but at least two men who are possessed by demons have likely been in the reversal many, many times where others have begged them for mercy. But now they're forced to beg for, for mercy from this one who is simply washed up on their shore. And the work of this man is manifested in one word. Go. See, this is a worthy worker. And Matthew points out that gospel reconciliation is accomplished by a costly work, one which no one else could do. And at the word, the mere will of this man forces these unclean spirits out. His word cleanses the land cleanses these men. And we see in one word that this man is all that Hebrew history had hoped that he would be. He's not just able to cast out these unclean spirits from these men and from the land. He's willing to do it as well. And the word for that is gospel. Gospel. The good news that cleansing has come. The hope of the nations is not just worthy, but willing to do the work of cleansing that which is unclean. Pigs are an interesting choice here. 
though I understand it's not a choice. It's what happened, but it's interesting that Matthew records that there's pigs here. He could have simply said that there were herds nearby that Jesus went to, but he chooses to tell us that there were pigs nearby. Now, as I mentioned before, pigs are an unclean animal, one that the Hebrews were not to possess, one that Israel was not to possess, to even consume. And so why does Matthew point it out? I think it's to hammer this point home. That Jesus' cleansing comes with all uncleanliness being driven away from the people of God. And we should be seeing by this time that this work is not cheap. No one could pass this way before. No man could pass by these men And Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not David, not Isaiah, could do the work of cleansing the land that Jesus does. And the work of Jesus takes that which is unclean from the land and sentences it to death. See, the work of Christ is not simply to dichotomize the life of his people, to give them a new thing to focus on and leave this beside. It is to wage war with his worth and his word against all that is unclean in your life. What happens at the word of this king? Go back to the text. At the word go, they came out and went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now, as a first century Jew, put those glasses back on for a minute, who's versed in history or versed in the law of the prophets, the significance of waters ought to stand out to you here. Right? We read Psalm 18 earlier this morning. Remember what is written there in Psalm chapter 18. Allow me to go back there for just a minute. And note the connotations of water present here. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me and the snares of death confronted me. The psalmist uses water-type language here to suggest death, that death was upon him. And this is a common motif in Scripture. And as a Jew, reading this account, that the herds of pigs rushed into the waters, it is to be presumed right away that they're cast into the bowels of hell itself. That death is now upon them. That these men are free. And Scripture is full of accounts like this. Take, for example... The mode of baptism, that you would be lowered into death, the waters, and raised into new life, pictured in the people of God crossing the Jordan and the Red Sea through the waters and raised to new life on the other side. Water to the Hebrew mind exists as death 
as chaos, as destruction. Even go back to the very idea of creation, the account that's written. It is written that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God hovered over the surface of the deep, over the waters. Out of chaos, God brings order. Out of death, God brings life. And so the fact that these pigs with demons now possessing them rush into the waters tells us that these things are cast to their death. That they now have no control over these two men. They're raised from death to life. the impeccable nature of God is the only one who can do this work of casting death or casting life from death, casting that which is unclean into death. And just as he creates out of chaos with a word, so the authority of Jesus is demonstrated over these demons with a word. Go. The person of Jesus is the only one who is capable of doing this work. And the work is to cast out that which is unclean from the people of God, leaving nothing behind. The people of God will not share the dominion of their king with anyone. Now this ought to be the climax of the story. This ought to be the celebration, the consummation. The king has come. He has delivered death and presented life. Matthew has shown us what sort of man he is. He is the true son of God, the result and the fulfillment of the history of God's promise of reconciliation, doing what no man could do with his power and in his will. Yet the story does not end there. Take a look. The herdsmen fled. Naturally, I wonder if they assumed they'd be blamed. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they hoisted him up as king. They proclaimed him as the Christ. They begged him to leave their region which presents us with the final reality of gospel reconciliation as told by Matthew. Gospel reconciliation is evidenced by costly affection for Christ. So when Christ does the work of reconciling his people to God, when he makes clean that which is unclean, A clear affection for Christ is present. What were these men thinking? What went through their head that caused them to chase Jesus off? Maybe they were thinking, well, I was going to do that. I was going to get around to casting out those demons one of these days. I could have done that. 
But we've already indicated that it was the worth of Christ alone that casts out that which is unclean. They couldn't do it in their own ability. Maybe they were thinking, well, that was too costly a price to pay for reconciliation. They're too costly a price to pay to have the land cleansed. They're looking for some grace that was a little bit cheaper, a little bit less costly. Maybe they could minimize the need for Christ a little bit. Maybe elevate humanity a little bit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this about cheap grace. He says, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows. See, the results of gospel reconciliation produce an affection for Christ that are stirred because one sees simply and clearly that they had no other way to be reconciled to God. That there was no option, nowhere to turn, that they could not hang on to this uncleanness and love Christ. They could not have it both ways. Affection for Christ is to recognize the costliness of the person and work of Christ in such a way as to reject anything that may blur our focus on him. Gospel reconciliation brings into focus the glory of God in the man, Jesus Christ, the one who is only capable of restoring man to God. So the question that we're left with as we read Matthew's account of the Christ is, how will you respond to this Christ? What will you do with him? There's a warning in these people, isn't there? That you can't cling to your stuff. You can't cling to that which is unclean and claim Christ. You can't have both. Christ has come to cast out that which is unclean. Now this is pictured in a very external reality in the Gospel of Matthew, isn't it? A very physical casting out of demons in the land. And it's interesting as we read this account that Jesus' response to these people is not to cast them into the sea along with the demons and the pigs. Have you considered that? His grace is sufficient to allow them to continue for the day. To allow them to continue to live 
and potentially respond to him at another point. But church, there is a day coming when the physical reality of the work of the Christ will come to bear and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for today, Jesus Christ has come to pronounce an eternal reality upon his people. That his grace is not cheap. That it is costly. It is accomplished by a costly and worthy king for their benefit so that they can love him and enjoy him forever. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this reality. Thank you for the truth of the cost of reconciliation. We have utter need of you. We have no ability to ascend to your throne. We are unclean. But Father, you have made a way through your Son. And so, Father, I pray that you would cause us to so desire your Son that we would cast out or allow you to cast out all that is unclean in our life out of an affection for you and a desire to know you more and more. Let it be so, Father, for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.